Thanks, Marvin. Well, good morning and happy Sabbath. I can definitely second um, what Sam was saying about our church becoming a bit brighter place six months ago. So we're, we're very glad that Kedson and uh, Levi are, are here with us. So we are continuing on, or we're finishing up our series on uh, reasons to believe. So last week, Jin Ha did the first part, um, and she talked about the validity of the Bible and how we can know that, uh, how we can trust that the scripture that we have in our hands can indeed be trusted. Uh, she also covered um, some archaeological evidence uh, that supports the historicity of scripture, and I'll just be referencing it um, briefly today um, in, 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 the, in the talk or in the sermon. So today we're going to be doing part two. And I, I really struggle with apologetic sermons for several reasons. One, uh, I'm not a scientist. I'm not a philosopher. I'm not an intellect. And so whenever it comes to these topics, I always hesitate because I'm like, oh, this isn't really my forte. But anyway, it's in the schedule. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to present um, what I've learned um, with you guys. I'm going to share four arguments that I'm not comfortable with, uh, but I think that are important to discuss, and then I'll share two arguments that um, I'm very comfortable with, and I'll share why I think uh, those two reasons can build faith. So here we go. Um, the first reason, and let's see if I can get this to start. The first reason to believe is that the mysteries surrounding the origins of the universe cause us to ask the question, is there anything beyond what can be explained by modern science? So I want to start by looking at the origins argument. This is not going to prove that God exists, but it's just going to present the mystery surrounding the origins of the universe. So in the 1920s and 30s, the predominant theory um, was that the universe is infinite or infinite in time and space, suspended by gravitational attraction. And that just means all the stars and planets in the cosmos have always been there. They always were, they always will be. The universe simply was. Then there was a man by the name of Edwin Hubble, and uh, he's kind of an interesting character because he was a lawyer, and um, it's kind of interesting seeing like the different backgrounds of different scientists, but he was a lawyer, and he became an astronomer. So Michael, if you ever decide to have a change in a profession, then there you go. So Edwin lived at a time when massive telescopes were invented. And Hubble started using these massive telescopes to take pictures of the universe. And uh, here we have um, something called the Hubble Deep Field. And as he was kind of searching the galaxy, or as he was kind of searching the skies, um, initially he saw these different specks. And as, he's, as technology increased and as he was able to bring those specks into focus, he started seeing color and swirls and organized shapes. And he kind of thought, or he kind of realized, there are galaxies outside of our own galaxies that exist. And as you can see, it, it is an impossible thing to actually count all of the different galaxies that are out there. 
um, you'll also notice the different color and there's specific colors that are kind of accented in those galaxies. Well, as as Hubble and his team um, examined um, the the Hubble Deep Field, uh, he found that just as sound flattens out as objects move move further away from you, and so for example, let's say you're at the train station, and as the train leaves or comes near you and then leaves, you you, you hear the audible or, or the sound kind of taper off and um, almost. Uh, flatten out. So it's kind of like, wow, as something goes further away from you. Forgive my, uh, <laughs> I was like, just in case my explanation doesn't make sense, I'll give you an audible sound bite there. So what he noticed was that the wavelength of objects stretched out as they move further away visually as well. And so Hubble found that the galaxies that were furthest away tended to look red. And so if you look here, there are little specks of red. And what he noticed is that the red is actually uh, galaxies that are the furthest away. And not only that, what he realized is that there are these specks of red going in every single direction. And where there were red galaxies, he realized the galaxies were actually moving further away from Earth in every direction. And that meant that the galaxy is, or excuse me, the universe is expanding. It's constantly expanding. And so Hubble asked this question, what happens if you wind back the time? You keep winding it back 5,000 years, 10,000 years, 1 million years. What does that actually state about the universe? And what it means is that the universe used to be smaller. And if you trace the origins of the universe, then it means all the matter in the universe is going to compress into a single point, and there would have to be at a beginning to that expansion. So there was a famous German physicist, which you're probably familiar with. His name was Albert Einstein. And at around the same time, just before Hubble came to this conclusion, Albert Einstein mathematically figured out, you know what, I think the origins of the universe came from a single point in space and then expanded. But he didn't like that idea. And here's why Albert Einstein didn't like that idea. Because if there was ever a time when the universe came to a point, there may have been a time when there was a zero point. And here's why this troubled Albert Einstein. He didn't like the idea because it implies the need for a cause beyond the universe. And what that means is the laws of physics and mathematics cease to exist prior to the Big Bang. And that was unsettling for Albert Einstein because he was saying, you cannot explain the Big Bang. And he was like, if you can't explain it by science, then I don't want to acknowledge that it's even there. And so what he did was he just said, you know what, forget it. That, that theory is not true, and he kind of dismissed it. Well, what happened was that later on, Hubble invited Albert Einstein to his observatory, and he said, hey, Einstein, you have to check this out. So he invited him to Pasadena, and Albert Einstein came and looked through these massive telescopes that Hubble was using, and he finally submitted to that point, and he said, I now see the necessity of a beginning. I now see the necessity of the beginning. There's a 
man by the name of Alan Sandagi. I probably pronounced his last name incorrectly. <laughs> Just didn't roll off the tongue the right way. He was a researcher who helped Hubble with his redshift research, and he said in his findings, here is evidence for what can only be described as a supernatural event. There is no way that this could have been predicted within, within the realm of physics as we know it. And so if you listen to what he's saying, he's saying, this isn't normal. We can't explain it. And so it's left in the realm of mystery. In other words, the laws of physics have to change in order to explain the events that take place prior to the Big Bang because something never comes from nothing. There's another man by the name of Robert Jastrow. And forgive me, I'm going to quote you to death and there's going to be a bunch of uh, reading. So anyway, Robert Jastrow, uh, who is an astronomer, says, This is an exceeding strange development, unexpected by all, But the theologians, they have always accepted the word of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heaven and earth. It is unexpected because science has had such extraordinary success in tracing the chain of cause and effect backward in time. And so to explain this, um, there's a story of uh, this young scientist who kind of comes home from uni, and he's really excited about all the astronomy that he's uh, learned about, and he goes to this lunch uh, where there's this uh, lady who's been in town forever, and he kind of starts explaining what he's been learning, and she says, ah, yeah, that's great that you learned about all this uh, physics, but um, what you need to know is that all of Earth sits on top of the back of a turtle, and you're wrong. And so here's this young uni student, and he's kind of like the back of a turtle, and he's, he's like, all right, I'm going to poke and prod this woman. And he says, okay, if the whole earth sits on top of the back of a turtle suspended in, in, in space, what's under the turtle? And the old lady looks at, looks at him, and she says, ah, you're a smart one, but you're not going to get away with that one. It's just nonstop turtles. And What he's saying here is that when it comes to science, there has always been a cause and effect. But if you keep following that line of logic, the question is, well, at a certain point in time, you then have to answer, where's the beginning point? And they're saying, we don't have one. Here's the second part of that quote. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak, and as he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. Now, Robert Jastrow is not a Christian, and that's kind of why I like this quote. He's actually an agnostic, Um, Robert Jastrow was an astronomer, he was a planetary physicist, and he was a scientist for NASA. He was the first chairman of NASA's Lunar Exploration Committee. In other words, he was part of the group that planned the uh, Apollo missions. And so he was a part of the group that said, okay, what are our goals? What are we going to accomplish? And so this wasn't just this Christian who had an axe to grind. This was a guy who didn't subscribe to any religion. He doesn't really believe in God. He was kind of an agnostic. And as he spent time working for NASA, 
Um, and just to kind of add to his credentials, he became the founding director of NASA's Goddard uh, Institute for Space Studies, and he served there till his retirement in 1981. So Jastrow was an agnostic, but then he, at the latter part of his career, he began to hold the belief that there was a beginning to the universe and there was a creator. And he actually copped a lot of flack for that. And I just think it's incredible that there's someone who says, I'm not religious, but there has to be something out there. Ben Stein made a, let me see if I'd buggy cool. Ben Stein made a controversial documentary called Expelled. And this film contends that the mainstream science establishment suppresses academics who believe they see evidence of intelligent design. So in this famous documentary, he interviews Richard Dawkins. And you can actually uh, YouTube this video. I wanted to post the actual video, but I was kind of like, ah, oh, it's probably um, not uh, copyright. Uh, um, it's probably not legal to do that. And so what I've done is I've posted the transcript, and that's almost as good. So here's Ben Stein talking to Richard Dawkins, who's probably one of the most well-known skeptics, atheists, and anti-Christians out there. So Ben Stein asks him, how did it get created? Dawkins responds, by a very slow process. Well, how did it start? Nobody knows how it started. We know the kind of event that it must have been. We know the sort of event that must have happened for the origin of life. And what was that? It was the origin of the first self-replicating molecule. Right, and how did that happen? I told you, we don't know. And what you see here is Ben Stein is taking out one turtle at a time. Okay, get rid of that turtle. What about, what's under that turtle? Well, what's under that turtle? So what do you think is a possibility that intelligent design might turn out to be the answer to some issues in genetics or in Darwinian evolution? Dawkins' response, well, it could come about in the following way. It could be that at some earlier time, somewhere in the universe, a civilization evolved, probably some kind of Darwinian means, uh, probably by some kind of Darwinian means, probably to a very high level of technology and designed a form of life that they seeded onto perhaps this planet. Um, now, that is a possibility and an intriguing possibility. And I suppose it's possible that you might find evidence for that if you look at the details of biochemistry, molecular biology, you might find the signature of some sort of designer. That's an incredible quote for one of the world's greatest or one of the world's well-known skeptics to say, you know what? You can actually see hints of a signature of a designer. That's very, very significant. So in 2008, which is when this documentary was put together, Richard Dawkins, who's a biologist, states, if you look at the details of biochemistry, you'll see a signature of some sort. Stephen Hawking, who's also a very well-known, um, uh, who was a well-known atheist, in an interview with Reuters in 2007 said, I believe the universe is governed by the laws of science. Conceding that the laws may have been decreed by God, but God does not intervene to break the laws. And so what you're seeing is in the science community, they're saying, yeah, we can't explain how we got here. It's a supernatural occurrence. And that, that is a really, really big thing for people who are staunch atheists. Now, what I want to admit at this point in time is that almost 11 years have passed since 
2008 when the documentary was put together and uh, since uh, Stephen Hawking said, yeah, I believe that there could be a God and that he's put these laws into existence. Now, in 11 years, that means there would have been developments in science, in philosophy, in theory. And that has actually happened. People have moved on from subscribing to this specific theory. Stephen Hawking made it his life's mission to explain the great mysteries of the universe. And the holy grail, in my opinion, for Stephen Hawking is explaining the origins of the universe. And so he really dedicated the last parts of his life uh, in writing and developing theories that explain the origins of the universe. And in 2010... Stephen Hawking said that the idea of God was not necessary to explain the origin of the universe as the laws of physics offer enough of an explanation. That's very different from what he said just three years before that. So when you look at what people are saying today in regards to string theory, M theory, and um, a potential multiverse explaining what could have happened prior to the Big Bang, I'm just name-dropping these things because... It's actually really, really complicated what people are saying. And uh, not, not, not to discredit it because it's complicated. I'm just saying, one, as I read, as I watch, as I'm looking through it, I was like, there's no way I'm going to be able to explain this in a sermon. <laughs> but I think it's important to highlight these things because later on, if you want to understand what people are really wrestling with, it's good to know what's out there. So string theory M theory, and M, actually, there's argument over what M stands for. It could be mystery theory. It could be magical theory. And that's that's not a good scientific name for something. But anyway, it's called M theory and then multiverse explanation. And so um, it's important to acknowledge that there are developments in science. But I, as I look at what's being said and what's being written, I think the late Dr. Hawking was very optimistic when he said physics offers enough of an explanation. Because when you actually read what people are saying about each other, there's still, um, it's not anywhere near conclusive. And they'll even, the scientists will even say, we're not close to a solution yet. But we think there could be. And physics will explain it sometime. And I'm kind of like, we'll, we'll wait and see. Up until now, that hasn't happened. Now, what I do find is that it's interesting over the last 10 years that the tone of what scientists are saying is changing. You know, the scientific community used to say, yeah, you know what? There might be a God. And now they're saying, no, there is no God. Math is the answer or science is the answer. And that's really, really important because as a Christian, I want to know why is that transition happening? And I almost think it's because the religious community holds the scientific community accountable and says, hey, you can't straddle the fence on this. You can't say there might be a God, but then we subscribe to science, right? That's not fair. And so the scientists are saying, okay, you're right. There is no God, and we're going to prove it with science. And so what I'm saying is that as we interact with people who don't subscribe to our worldview, it's really important to actually listen and understand and actually try and cultivate some sort of a dialogue that's healthy. Um, when you watch some of these interviews of scientists, they're just very angry. There are times where someone can have a very polite, respectful conversation and say, oh yeah, that's a good point, but what about this? You know, There's, there's that kind of conversation, and then there's uh, Christianity is a crutch. You know, like that type of language is very, very um, 
antagonistic. And so I think how we respond as a church, how we respond as thinkers is very, very important when it comes to understanding uh, uh, people who subscribe to uh, other worldviews. So I know this sermon was uh, initially about building faith, but anyway, I was like, um, it's worth it to talk about that. So um, it's important to remain humble, respectful, and have a genuine dialogue because you never know what opportunity might arise. So we've talked about the mysteries surrounding the origins of the universe, and now I'd like to briefly talk about the mysteries surrounding the origins of biology. Now, I'm going to briefly mention geology as well, because I think geology and biology, there are really good arguments that kind of support uh, intelligent design, and there are really good arguments that even... Uh, go against the idea that there's intelligent design. Uh, design. And here's just like a brief, uh, a brief uh, thought that I thought was really interesting. Um, Christians and creationists state that we are made with a purpose. We're made with a purpose. We're made with uh, God had something in mind when he uh, created and designed us. And skeptics will then ask, well, what's the purpose of wisdom teeth? And if you think about it, it's kind of like a painful experience, and you're kind of like, why does why is there an extra, you know, four teeth that come out? And it almost seems like an afterthought or a mistake, right? Or what about the male nipple? Um, what purpose does the male uh, male nipple serve? And these are really really good questions. And I was kind of reading through different things. And I was like, yeah, that's a good point. Like, I don't really know. Um, and of course. People have different responses to those things, and you can just go on and on and on forever arguing over the purpose of specific bits of human or animal anatomy. Um, amongst the animal kingdom, there are tons of fossils that would make evolution seem like a legitimate theory. Uh, but similar, uh, there, are, there are tons of examples that would show that uh, the creation theory uh, holds water as well. Um, so let me spend just a brief moment on what I think is probably the most compelling argument in biology. And it's similar to the first thing that we talked about, and that's the origins question. If you look at, gen if you look at genetics, who we are, what color hair we have, what color eyes we have, the color of our skin is determined by genetics. We are written pieces of code. And so the question is, if there is code, well, who was the... Who was the um, Code writer, James, hey, uh, uh, help me out here. What do I call the code writer? Programmer. Who's the programmer? Thank you. <laughs> you can tell this is not my field. <laughs> Who is the programmer? If there's code, who's the programmer? And that's why Richard Dawkins, who is a biologist, says there's a signature of some kind. There is proof that there's some kind of a designer. Now, if you're interested in geology and biology, there's a series called Creatures That Defy Evolution, and you can watch this on YouTube. I think I've got a slide here. Um, before, you had to uh, purchase the DVDs, and then uh, recently I was kind of looking on YouTube, and the whole series is online for free. And so um, it, he, the, the presenter is a, um, I think he's a professor of biology, and he basically looks at individual animals and he kind of states cases saying, hey, there are certain animals that cannot um, 
you can't go through the process of natural selection with these animals. Every single ingredient and formula that makes this animal what it is has to be there. And so um, I find that uh, the different examples that he gives are quite interesting. Um, if you prefer reading, the Adventist Church has um, a department called the Geoscience Research Institute, and uh, it's called the GRI, and the website is grisda.org. And if you would like to see what our specific denomination has to say about in the realm of science, geology, and biology, um, that's there for you um, if you're interested. So the third reason why I think um, the third thing that I find it that is compelling that uh, can help confirm faith or even build faith is the historicity of the Bible. And Jinha actually spent a good amount of time in her sermon talking about this, and so I'm going to reference you to her sermon. If you're interested, you can go onto the church's YouTube channel. But I'll just do a quick refresher. Um, the fact that the Dead Sea Scrolls exist shows from archaeology that we can trust the validity of the Bible. In the book of Luke, there are 53 geographical locations which have been confirmed to be accurate through archaeology. Um, in archaeological findings, they found the tomb of Caiaphas. They found a slab of stone identifying Pontius Pilate. And with all these different archaeological historical facts that are confirmed that surround the life of Jesus, we can then build an argument saying Jesus is indeed a historical figure. And there's actually zero argument in even secular society questioning whether or not Jesus of Nazareth was an influential person in the time of the first century. Now, what is argued over is the meaning behind those historical events. We look at those historical events and say, Jesus is the Son of God. They would look at those historical events and say, well, Jesus was a popular teacher. And so that's another story. But the fact that you can historically verify those events uh, in the Bible is very, very compelling. The fourth reason, the mystery surrounding supernatural occurrences I'm going to take a different route to talking about this topic. Um, rather than giving biblical examples, I'm going to give charismatic Pentecostal examples because I think these are so interesting. Um, I don't know if you've ever um, Google searched uh, what's happening in the Pentecostal realm, but there's kind of this movement where people pray and they find gold teeth in their mouth. Has anyone ever seen that? Okay, so basically there's this random – and, and this, the, there are hundreds and hundreds of occurrences throughout the world where people will come to church and say, God, I need a miracle. And the pastor will go to the person, hold their face, pray for them, and then there's a gold tooth in their mouth afterwards. And, and, and just video after video – and people will actually – they're like – look, and they'll ask the person, did you have that before you came to church? And they're like, no, I didn't have it. And for me, it's not a question of, is it from God, right? Whether it's from God or not is not my point. My point is that you cannot explain gold teeth coming from nowhere. And so the question is, as a scientist or as a skeptic, how do you then look at that and say the supernatural doesn't exist? Does that argument make sense? So there's another guy. His name is Joshua Mills, and he's a pretty well-known charismatic guy, and he's, he's fairly young, and um, at the age of 16 or 17, he went to church, he was slain in the spirit, and he laughed for hours, and he couldn't explain it, and then months later, um, he says, God is telling me to go minister to 
you know, minister to his people. And what happens is as he's preaching, uh, gold dust appears on him and then oil comes out of his hand. And, and it's kind of like very well documented that something supernatural is definitely happening. And what's really interesting to me is that secular media will actually commentate on Joshua Mills. And so what their question is, hey, Joshua, if God is wanting to communicate so much that he is powerful and that he loves you and he wants to perform miracles, why is he sprinkling dust on you and not saving the children and families who are dying in the Middle East? And when I listen to that, I think, man, that's such a great question. And for me, it is highly debatable whether or not what's happening to Joshua Mills is from God or not. But when I look at that story, I ask them, why aren't you asking the question, where on earth is that gold dust coming from? There's no comment about that. It's just a comment about how silly and ridiculous it is. And I'm saying, hey, yes, you're addressing an important issue, but there's a more important issue that you are not addressing. And that's the fact that something supernatural that cannot be explained is happening. Now, I picked a couple non-biblical examples. And when you actually listen to Joshua Mills' sermons, they're terrible. Like, I listen to it, I'm like, man, that is your... um, There's some very creative uh, twisting of scripture that you're doing over there. Um, But, yeah, I want to highlight science cannot explain everything. And for that reason, to then immediately dismiss the supernatural occurrences of scripture is... um, I feel a stretch. We're almost done. Second to the last reason. And this is where I start um, feeling a lot more comfortable when it comes to explaining. These are things that can build your faith. The fulfilled promises given throughout Scripture. The Bible claims that the Word of God reveals who He is. And the experience of encountering God is a promise. It's, it's kind of like a product um, of following scripture. So if that experience is the product, then the Bible is the user manual for Christianity. So then following the instructions in the user manual is necessary to experience the product. Now, I know I'm reading my notes, but just follow through this logic for a moment. See, I think the problem is that people doubt the product, people doubt the user manual. But skeptics don't do the one thing that is required to experience the product, and that's follow the instructions that are written in the user manual. It's easy to doubt the manual, it's easy to doubt the product, but these are straw man arguments because they ask God to defend himself in areas that he doesn't choose to defend himself in. God says, follow me, and you will know that I exist. So if I want to test God, are you really real? Then just live out God's word and see if he does something. As Christians, we spend a lot of thought and energy into defending the existence of God. We spend a lot of thought and energy defending the scriptures, and these are good things. But I think the greatest proof is in following the instructions ourselves and then giving clear instructions to others so they can do the same. John chapter 14, verse 21 says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved of my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. And this is a quote from Jesus. And he is saying, it is possible to encounter himself. 
So here's the outline. Keep the commandments, obey them. Be open to God's love and reciprocate that love. And the result will be Jesus will manifest himself to us. I've met plenty of people who have read the Bible and doubted it. I have never met anyone who is open to God, lived out the teachings of God, and didn't encounter him in some way. And I realize this seems circular. Logically, it's better to say, God, you prove yourself, and then I'll follow you. But if we assume God is real and follow his teachings, we're just going to make him up in our own minds. And what I'm saying sounds circular, but it's actually how relationships work. And this is what I mean. When you start a relationship with someone, you get to know them while you date them. And the relationship has the best chance of succeeding when you assume the best in the other person, when you give them the benefit of the doubt. If you are constantly questioning the person, if you're questioning their integrity, their commitment, their love for you, you're setting the relationship up for failure. So I think a lot of people miss out on God because of the approach, and that's why Jesus lays out the instruction of how to encounter him. Follow my words, be open to my love, and be willing to love me. I will reveal myself to you. Over the years, I've found time and time again, as I understand more of what it means to follow God, at each moment of surrender, there have been countless times where I've felt and seen God do incredible things. Isaiah 55.11 says, So will my word be that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish that which I propose, uh, purpose, and will succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So the last thing that I want to mention, and I realize I'm going pretty long here, God's will being fulfilled in those who believe in him. And basically what I want to say here is that We are God's representatives as a church. And as a church, if we live out his will and fulfill his will in the community, there's a lot higher chance that people will say, you know what? There's a good chance that God is real because of what you're doing. I believe him because of you. There's a verse here in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 2 and 3. You are our epistle written in our hearts, known and read by all men. Clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. As you think about these different aspects of uh, what it means to believe, I hope that uh, there's something in there that uh, would be able to connect with you. And for those of you who are watching online, um, you know, there's so much more to study, so much more to learn, and I hope that this opens that door so that uh, further exploration can take place. May God bless you as you continue to think about his work.